You know, a family member, a friend of mine, who works for Facebook, told me that his experience is that Mark Zuckerberg uh, is becoming more conservative now that he's getting older and running big businesses, that he's getting it now, and he understands that capitalism uh, isn't as bad as people make it out to be, and it's the way to go. And this friend of mine is pretty high placed in Facebook and does have a lot of face time, no pun intended, with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, but I found that hard to believe when he told me, and now I know why I didn't believe it based on this new revelation that within 24 hours of launching his new Threads app, which is supposed to be a direct competition to Twitter, he has already begun censoring free speech. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store and download the free Podbean app, search out the Jamie Dury Show and subscribe that way, or just use your native podcast aggregator app in either of those two devices. And just subscribe to The Jamie Dury Show directly that way. Whichever way you choose to subscribe, you'll be able to leave reviews, leave comments, and you can always email me directly at jamiedury1776 at gmail.com if there's a topic you'd like me to cover or a question you'd like to ask. Uh, or if you have a particular comment uh, on an episode that I've already done and you'd like a more personalized response, if I can fit that in, I certainly will be happy to do that for you. So, Mark Zuckerberg has a new app called Threads. It's been advertised by some as a Twitter killer. It just launched about 24 hours ago, and apparently it's racked up quite a few signups, but that's to be expected when you own a company like Facebook that has billions of subscribers, and you suddenly launch a new app called Threads uh, that uh, purports to go along the same lines as what Facebook did during the COVID epidemic and during the election, spending $400 million to oppose Trump. Don't tell me that wasn't election interference. Excuse me, I'm sipping a little iced tea. My throat's a little dry. Uh, and with people's dissatisfaction with Twitter now that Elon Musk has taken it over, because for once, thanks to Mr. Musk, <clears throat> Twitter is actually uh, purporting to represent fee- free speech. We're not just censoring people because we disagree with them like that idiot Jack Dorsey did w- uh, when Trump was running and tried to shut down his, or did in fact shut down his Twitter account. So they've gotten 70 million signups within one day. But again, to be expected, will that rate of sign-up 70 million a day continue? No, it will not. Uh, but And I think now that this little revelation has come to pass, uh, I don't think it's going to go. It took them one day to censor Donald Trump Jr. But it's not just limited to people like Donald Trump Jr. Now, already this Threads app is the subject of legal action. Um, They're being sued by Twitter. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is the owner of Meta, Facebook, Threads, and WhatsApp. 
Okay. Now, Mark Michael Schellenberger was one of those reporters who broke that story about the Twitter files, exposing how Twitter was censoring people and sort of stacking the deck against political opponents that they disagreed with in the pre-Musk days. Um, And um, Mr. Schellenberger has naturally been very interested in the launch of this Threads app. He says, well, right away, here's a quote, there were users who showed that they had been censored. So we have an example. Mr. Schellenberger was not without example. He's a well-prepared journalist. There's a conservative commentator by the name of Rogan O'Hanley. Now, his, his handle on Twitter was at DC Drano. Uh, now, he went on Twitter, did Mr. O'Hanley, to post that he had downloaded the Threads app, and he made one post. He posted once about wanting to expose Biden's corrupt government as a quote, and they've already flagged me for censorship. This is what Mr. O'Hanley posted on Twitter. Now, he also shared a screenshot that shows that there are warning labels on his Threads profile for anyone that wants to follow him. So in other words, if you were someone who had been following Mr. O'Hanley on Twitter, and you knew what his handle was there, and you want to follow him across platforms, like myself, the Jamie Dury Show has profiles on Twitter and on Trump's Truth Social. I was only going to stick with Truth Social, but once I learned that Mr. Musk had taken over Twitter, I opened up a Twitter account for the Jamie Dury Show. And so it would be logical if you're a person like that, that you'd want to have a profile on threads. But in light of what I'm reading now, I don't think so. So this fellow, O'Hanley, on his profile on threads, if you go to try and click on it because you want to follow him, you get a warning that says, are you sure you want to follow DC Drano? This account has repeatedly posted false information that was reviewed by independent fact checkers or went against our community guidelines. For God's sakes, the the platform has only been up 24 hours. How could he have repeatedly posted false information or going against community guidelines? What what community guidelines is he going against? The fact that he has an opinion that the Biden government is corrupt and he wants to expose it? Isn't that what the power of the press and freedom of speech is supposed to be about? Holding power to account? Or is it only a free speech exercise when you're holding power to account that you disagree with. Like if he said, I'm sure, I want to expose the corrupt Trump government. I bet you he wouldn't have been flagged for violating community guidelines. I'd really like to know what community guidelines he he violated. So this is the way Threads is coming out of the gate. Censoring straight away. Now, if they continue in this vein... Uh, I don't think you're going to see a continuation of these 70 million a day signups, uh, and they're going to just uh, gain more um, animus against them and expose themselves to legal problems. Their legal problems are already beginning. Twitter is threatening legal action against Zuckerberg because of this Threads app. Um, lawyers for Musk, 
are already threatening to take legal action against Meta Platforms uh, after the Mark Zuckerberg-owned company this week unveiled the Threads app, which is a micro-blogging platform uh, rivaling Twitter. In a letter dated July 5th addressed to Mr. Zuckerberg, Alex Spiro, an attorney for Mr. Musk, stated that um, Twitter has serious concerns that Meta has engaged in systematic, willful, and unlawful misappropriation of Twitter's trade secrets and other intellectual property. Uh, He went on then to accuse Meta of hiring dozens of former Twitter Twitter employees over the course of the last year, uh, who he claims had and continue to have access to Twitter trade secrets and other confidential uh, information. Now, this is extremely plausible to me because you'll know uh, you'll note if you follow this show and and uh, Mr. Musk himself, he is now running Twitter with about 25% of the employees that they had before. Which leads a lot of people to believe that many of the subscribers that Twitter had were bots that Twitter had put in itself so they could sort of shape public opinion, suppress other people, promote others. Uh, And Musk said, we just don't need, you know, truly free speech app that's not looking to screen people and and stifle people, and smother people, and censor people. We don't need these many employees. So many layoffs have occurred. There was a series of layoffs at Twitter when he took over last year uh, after he learned that the social media site was losing $4 million a day. Now, Musk is a businessman. He didn't make money by losing money in business, but by making money. So he began cutting the fat out of it. Quote, from Mr. Spiro again. Twitter deliberately assigned these employees to develop, he's speaking about the employees that they're accusing uh, Zuckerberg of pirating. They deliberately assigned these employees to develop, in a matter of months, Meta's copycat threads app with the specific intent that they use Twitter's trade secrets and other intellectual property in order to accelerate the development of this competing app. This is a violation of both state and federal law, as well as those employees' ongoing obligations to Twitter. This is a quote from Mr. Spiro, Mr. Musk's lawyer. He went on to further state that, quote, Twitter intends to strictly enforce its intellectual property rights and demands that Meta take immediate steps to stop using any Twitter trade secrets or other highly confidential information. Twitter reserves all rights, including but not limited to, the right to seek both civil remedies and injunctive relief without further notice to prevent any further retention, disclosure, or use of its intellectual property by Meta. So, as well as the threat of legal action... um, Mr. Spiro is also stressing that uh, Meta is expressly prohibited from engaging in what is known as crawling or scraping, which is effectively extracting Twitter's followers or data, adding that Twitter has the right to seek both civil remedies and injunctive relief if Meta engages in such activities. Uh, I, I think that Mr. Zuckerberg, he probably anticipated a lot of this, but I think he's going to find himself in a world of hurt 
he's trying to become uh, a monopoly. I mean, he came up with Facebook. And Facebook has dubious origins because there are many people that believe he did not come up with Facebook. The man is a socially inept buffoon when it comes to interpersonal relationships, which is why it seems so amusing that he should be the one to come up with a social media app, uh, the biggest of its kind up to that time, uh, Facebook. And... um, A lot of people think the other two students at Harvard came up with it. We don't know how much he bought it for or how much he settled with them for. I I just don't see it. I just don't see him being the one that did it. Obviously, he's intellectually bright, but he's so bright that I think he's socially inept. And now he's trying to market himself and rebrand himself as some sort of tough guy and athlete. He's a dweeb. Um, He's doing a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've seen him do stuff. It looks like he's kickboxing doing focus pad work, I don't think he could hit hard enough to bust an egg. Uh, I could see him doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu because that is typically the art that people who don't know how to fight and don't want to know how to fight and are afraid to learn how to fight usually take. They call it the art of fighting without fighting. In my experience, growing up doing a lot of boxing and and karate and things like that, um, when people get involved in a combat sport, there are two things that they don't like. Most people don't like getting hit and have to take some time to get used to that. And they also don't like being thrown, as in a judo match, to the floor or other hard surface because it really racks you. It really does. So what better thing than Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where they all start holding on to each other and nobody's closing any distance and they fall down on the floor and nobody hits anybody and nobody throws anybody. And that's all fine and good. And I'm sure it works very well against people who are doing the same thing. But it's quite a different thing when you've got someone trying to take your head off uh, with a punch. They hit you one time and all that BJJ is going to go right out the window. Uh, And uh, that's that's not an exaggeration, which is why even in the early days when they were all handpick opponents, when the um, Gracie family was trying to promote this BJJ, Uh, once the money started to increase, so it started to attract a better quality level of fighter, you saw the Gracies sort of bowed out because they couldn't cut it anymore. And today, in the MMA industry, which is an offshoot of those original UFC matches, you'll see most of the matches, unlike in the early UFCs, do not end by submission. They end by ground and pound. They get a guy down and they beat beat him into submission. So uh, I think he's just... Zuckerberg is just a, there's a lot not to like about him. And this is probably the latest. I mean, he already controls Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, uh, Meta. Now he's trying to control um, this app that's going to try and knock Twitter out. I mean, I, I, I can understand his desire to do it, but we don't want monopolies in this country, do we? I mean, I don't, I don't think we do. I remember when Twitter first came out, uh, my friend said to me, I said, well, what's the purpose of it? Why can't you just call me? Why can't we just text each other? But then it began to develop where you could really send out information with hyperlinks to other sites and things like that. So it was, um, it was quite interesting uh, how these things develop in their infancy. But uh, I think what with Twitter out there and Truth Social, I really don't know how much room there is for threads. And I don't know what threads is going to do so differently. 
that's going to give it a competitive edge uh, over Twitter. And if, if it's true, these allegations that Mr. Spiro is making, that they're basically pirating Twitter technology by way of hiring former employees who are now violating their confidentiality agreements, uh, I don't think it's going to go too far. So we'll keep an eye on it, but I don't suspect um, it's going too far. Now, why is Zuckerberg doing this besides his own desire to control social media? Well, he also thinks he can control the country because he thinks he can control politics and support the people he wants. Uh, But I don't know that he's going to be successful because politics is going to go on with or without Mr. Zuckerberg. Now, Trump, despite all attempts by the left to cripple him, indictments, threats, more indictments. He continues to go up in the polls, and he continues to increase his ability to raise money. Now, Mr. DeSantis is out there bragging that his campaign has been in effect since his May launch for a shorter period of time than Mr. Trump, and he's actually raising more money. That's what he's trying to say. Um, he's boasting that he's raised $150 million. Governor, I'm reading from an article in the Times. Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign for president on July 6th announced strong fundraising results, raising $20 million in its first six weeks. His independent super PAC, meanwhile, raised $130 million since launching in early March. Mr. DeSantis' campaign said in a written statement that his fundraising is the largest First quarter filing from any non-incumbent Republican candidate in more than a decade. It bests the $18.5 million, uh, that former President Donald Trump's campaign raised during the first two fundraising quarters as a candidate. $3.8 million in the fourth calendar quarter of 2022 and $14.5 million in the first quarter of 2023. Well, let me say this about that. First of all, I don't know that Trump has his own independent super PAC. Number two, Trump uh, announced his candidacy much sooner than DeSantis, which means the 2024 election was much further and more remote in time. So naturally, people's interest wasn't as great. In the intervening months since his launch in November of 2022, much has happened. All this... um, this new information coming out about the Bidens taking money from China, the millions of dollars, five millions of dollars in payoffs for Big Joe and five million for Hunter and other family members and the cocaine in the White House and a host of other things, that people now have a real serious concern. And when we get to the other part of the program where I talk about the increase in corporate bankruptcies, uh, there's a lot of people in the United States now who are very fearful about what the future holds. Uh, this continued destabilization in Ukraine and Russia, uh, a war potentially looming with China, uh, global instability. People are really fearful. And so now they're taking a greater interest uh, in the campaigns. And I think that Mr. DeSantis's announcement in May is sort of coterminous with the um, advent of all these problems coming to light and coming to the fore. So I don't think it indicates that he's going to be as formidable a candidate as Trump. In fact, whatever the money is saying, it hasn't translated into his 
uh, surging in the polls, while Mr. DeSantis is raising all this money ostensibly, the contrary has happened with his lead in the polls. It is shrinking. Trump is widening his lead in the polls. So um, I don't think you can draw too much from this fundraising data uh, at this early stage. You can draw a little criticism, uh, which I'll get to in a second, but to show you, DeSantis knows he's behind because he says he's going to be at the first GOP presidential primary debate, whether Trump is there or not. Now, Trump has stated that he might not go to the first debate because he has a substantial lead, and he thinks that Fox is trying to get him there only to boost their ratings. You saw what he did for CNN. They never had a a rating like that in the last five or eight years, Uh, but they did just because Trump was on there. Uh, Now... Trump has got a little bit of a, an animus against Fox because they've, they've kind of like stabbed him in the back, and that's because Rupert Murdoch is old. He's really not running it. Uh, Murdoch's kids are running it. They're liberals. Uh, so Fox is not the Fox that we knew. And I think um, the first nail in their coffin was getting rid of Tucker Carlson. It's a different world now, as a lot of people have remarked, including Megyn Kelly. You know, they got a false sense of power and security and a sense of their own importance when they were able to successfully part ways with people like Megyn Kelly and um, Bill O'Reilly before that, uh, thinking that no one host is bigger than Fox. Well, these people are doing well uh, having left Fox. Megyn Kelly's got a great podcast. She's doing well financially and um, in terms of reach of audience. The nature of news has changed. Corporate news, organized news, it's dying. It's not completely dead, but it's dying. And Fox is a dying brand. They shot themselves, if I had to point to one incident, they shot themselves in the foot and revealed what their true motive was and what their thinking was going to be going forward when they resisted and resisted and resisted, even though his lead was growing and growing and growing, from calling Florida for Donald Trump while jumping, jumping at the bit, to call Arizona for Biden, all because they never wanted it to appear that at any point in the evening, Trump was ahead. All part of an orchestrated plan. If I had to point to one event, that was the moment. That was the moment when Fox began to hemorrhage and began to die. I never went back to Fox after that night. I saw the handwriting on the wall. And many other people have as well. And you can point to that moment as a pivotal moment because that was the same moment when Newsmax began to surge and OAM, but particularly Newsmax, because Newsmax got a little more money behind them. They have a different look on the air. It looks more like a professional, uh, high end uh, news organization. And I think as they get more and more money, you're going to see uh, more and more of that, particularly as they begin to accrue bigger names uh, to the network. I'm convinced that eventually Tucker Carlson may may very well wind up uh, at Newsmax unless he decides he wants to go uh, the private route. But I think uh, that's one of the main reasons why DeSantis is vowing to get on the debate stage, even though it is Fox, and even though Fox has all these infirmities that I've just described with the uh, conservative base, 
He's behind, and he needs to get his face out in the forefront uh, and appear as a leader. I don't think uh, Trump will will oblige. He may go for a subsequent debate, but he's the front runner right now, and he sees no reason to change. So we'll see how that goes. The other thing that I alluded to earlier is that um, DeSantis got a little bit of an embarrassment here. It's just recently come to light that his campaign used an artificial intelligence deep fake in attack ads against Donald Trump, and this has resulted in somewhat uh, of a backlash. It says here in this article in the Times that Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis and his 2024 presidential campaign have come under criticism for using fake images generated with artificial intelligence depicting former President Donald Trump with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, if you guys remember, back when they were doing these briefings, in the beginning, Trump, not being a scientist himself, did what any good leader would do. He relied on the advice of experts who were more knowledgeable in certain fields than he was. And then as the passage of time elapsed, he began to realize these people were not giving him good advice and had a vested interest uh, in taking the courses of action that they did. And he began to distance himself from Dr. Fauci. And you saw that as these press conferences that Trump was running took place, you saw Fauci less and less. And when you did see him, he was just standing there with a mask on his face so he couldn't speak. So for DeSantis's campaign to use artificial intelligence to depict Trump hugging Fauci is really going a little bit low. And if it comes to pass that it seems that this was ordered by DeSantis and he knew about it or approved it, it's not going to reflect well on him. Uh, It was shown on a Twitter account called DeSantis War Room in which they shared videos showing several images of Trump and Fauci, three of which depicted Trump hugging and kissing Fauci on the face with the caption, real-life Trump, in an attempt to try and portray a close relationship between Fauci and uh, Trump. Uh, But it says here, quote, Donald Trump became a household name by firing countless people on television. But when it came to Fauci, the DeSantis War Room account said in a tweet, and then they show the images of him hugging and uh, kissing Fauci. I don't think anyone believes that Trump is a fan of Fauci uh, at this stage, and I don't think anyone believes that Trump was a fan of Fauci in the closing days of his administration. Uh, Anthony Fauci is a scoundrel, Anthony Fauci is a criminal. Anthony Fauci is a traitor to the United States. Anthony Fauci had an unholy relationship with Chinese officials in the Communist Party. Anthony Fauci sent money and research projects to communist China. Anthony Fauci belongs in an orange jumpsuit and he belongs in prison. And I think Anthony Fauci knows that if Donald Trump gets back in office, he may very well wind up in prison. So this is not a good thing for the DeSantis campaign, uh, and I'm sure it's something he's going to want to speak about and try and distance himself from. Now, 
Another thing I wanted to speak about today, and I alluded to earlier, is something that also has a connection with the campaign. Sources that I am familiar with have informed me that several prominent American business factions have now gravitated to the Trump camp because they recognize that their very, very business lives are imperiled by the current administration, and they feel they need someone with the wherewithal, the knowledge, and the intestinal fortitude to force through changes that are going to save corporate America. Now, the word corporate America is not a dirty word. I know liberals think it is, but not everyone can work for the government. They tried that in communist Russia. They've tried it in other places, and everything falls on its face. Think of it. You need a private sector. You pay income tax. How do you pay income tax? You pay income tax out of salary that you get from your employer. But if your employer is the one who's paying, if your government, rather, is the one who's employing you, and they're the ones who are paying your salary, you can't possibly pay back enough in taxes to fund your salary, and neither can anyone else, because you would have to give back the entirety of your salary. Government is only able to do these things because there's a private sector that they can levy taxes on, and that's how they're able to fund uh, a government workforce. But a government workforce can only get so large. You need a corporate sector. You need a private sector. Well, the private sector in this country is hemorrhaging. There is new data that is showing an increasing number of U.S. firms are going belly up as a result of increased interest rates uh, and corporate bankruptcies have reached the highest level in the first half of a fiscal year since 2010. That's the highest level in 13 years. In the first six months of this year, there were 340 corporate bankruptcies. That tops every other span in the previous 13 years in the first six months. Uh, S&P Global Market Intelligence is providing this information. This This number of bankruptcies is up 93% from the same time just a year ago, and it's higher than in 2020 when there had been an understandable increase in bankruptcies in the early days of 2020 because of the coronavirus pandemic and the associated government shutdowns, which forced uh, many businesses to close their doors. In the month of June alone, 54 bankruptcy filings occurred. There were also 54 in May. Some of the companies that file for bankruptcy, Lordstown Motors, Rockport Company, Instant Brand Acquisition Holdings, and iMedia Brands. Uh, These are not small companies. Lordstown Motors uh, just filed the latter part of June, June 27th, with an intention to restructure the business and seek a buyer. Uh, It's an electric vehicle manufacturer, which should give you some indication of how well electric vehicles are doing, which is not well at all. In fact, a little tidbit, um, sort of a sideway on this. They've done some research on pickup trucks. This is to show you what the limitations are of these electric vehicles. Do you know that if a pickup truck, electric-powered, carries a 1,500-pound payload in its bed, which is not a large amount for a pickup truck to carry, 
its gas mileage goes down, or I should say its mileage is no gas, goes down by 25%. You don't get that same kind of reduction in gas mileage uh, on a gasoline truck. Now, when you tow something, you do get a sharp decrease in gas mileage because you're not simply rolling on the four wheels of the truck. You, uh, you're towing another structure with increased drag, so there's more friction. But every truck will lose a little bit of gas mileage uh, when they're loaded, but not to that extent. And even if they do lose a certain amount of gas mileage in a gasoline or diesel truck, those trucks are repowered in five minutes at a gas station, filling up a tank. An electric vehicle has to stop multiple times. I have a friend who visits from New York. He used to live here in New York with his family. He now lives outside of a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, and he drives a Tesla. He's got to stop six or seven times to charge that Tesla traveling from St. Louis, Missouri to New York. You don't need to stop six or seven times for gas if you're driving a vehicle. If I drove my pickup truck from St. Louis to New York or vice versa, I may have to stop for gas twice, and that would be it. Wouldn't have to stop any more than that. So they're really not there yet. They're really not practical. Uh, but because of these bankruptcies, because of the economic downturn, the, inter the uh, interest rates going up, because of all the uncertainties around the globe, and remember, Wall Street does not like uncertainty because they can't ad adequately assess risk. A large number of prominent corporate businessmen are going to the Trump camp because they recognize that it's an absolute necessary uh, component in the survival of their businesses. Now, this is a Friday. One of the things we're trying to do now on Fridays, we're taking a page from my old hero, Rush Limbaugh's uh, book, where we're not necessarily having a theme like most of my shows were. The last show I did, I did a complete one-hour and ten-minute show just about the Supreme Court and what it did to save the republic as a consequence of the appointments that Trump uh, made on the court. But there is one story I want to give you today that has to do with the court. Now, you remember last month I praised Ketanji Jackson Brown, the newest addition to the court, Joe Biden, because she rightly and smartly sided with Neil Gorsuch in an opinion. I says, well, maybe the girl is not all bad. Maybe she's got a lot more on the ball than I gave her credit for. So I gave her kudos and gave her a shout out on this show. Well, apparently it has to be short-lived because she made a completely absurd claim, nothing more than sour grapes, over the affirmative action decision that the U.S. Supreme Court handed down last week with respect to admissions at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Why were they significant? Because Harvard is the oldest public institution of higher learning in this country, and the, United, the University of North Carolina is the oldest uh, pub, uh, public institution. Supreme Court Justice Jackson Brown joined with Elena Kagan, and she joined with Sotomayor. Now, to her credit, she recused herself from the Harvard decision because she has close ties to Harvard. She did not recuse herself 
from the North Carolina decision. A bigger question would be is why didn't Kagan recuse herself from the Harvard decision since she was the dean of Harvard Law School for a number of years? If a conservative had did that, they would have been screaming like stuck pigs for them to recuse themselves. Anyway, let me give you some quotes about what Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson said. And it was so absurd that attorney Ted Frank wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal challenging it because he said that she made a mathematically absurd, absurd claim about black newborns in her dissenting opinion in the affirmative action decision. Judge Jackson argued in her dissent, I'm reading a quote from the article, that diversity saves lives and that it was essential for marginalized communities. It saves lives. This is a quote. For marginalized communities in North Carolina, it is critically important that UNC and other area institutions produce highly educated professionals of color. Research shows that black physicians are more likely to accurately assess black patients' pain tolerance and treat them accordingly, including, for example, prescribing them appropriate amounts of pain medication. I'd like to know what research proves this out. So in other words, if I'm Italian, I've got to go to an Italian doctor or he can't adequately assess my pain tolerance. And if I'm Irish, I have to go to a, uh, a, a doctor that speaks with a brogue. Otherwise, he won't adequately. It doesn't make any sense at all. She goes on to dig herself a deeper hole. For high-risk black newborns, having a black physician more than doubles the likelihood that that baby will live and not die. Now, that is about as ludicrous a statement as you can get. In his Wall Street op-ed co-op, attorney Frank shot right back. He goes, obviously, even Supreme Court justices are known to be gullible. He said, quote, a moment's thought should be enough for anyone to realize that this claim is wildly implausible. He goes, imagine even if 40% of black newborns died, which is not the number, but let's assume for the sake of Judge Jackson's argument, that 40% of black newborns died, thousands of dead infants every week. That's still a 60% survival rate. And it is mathematically impossible to double a 60% survival rate, since nothing can exceed 100%. And the actual survival rate for black newborns, ladies and gentlemen, is, you guessed it, 99%. So it seems that black newborns are surviving very well with our current slate of doctors, whatever the racial makeup may, may be. So there clearly is no necessity to change the ethnic makeup of the medical community in the United States on the threadbare sophistry of reason that this is somehow going to result in a greater survival rate for newborns of color. This is almost beneath contempt. Uh, Attorney Frank went on further to say, how could Justice Jackson make such an enumerate mistake? He goes, a footnote cites a friend of the court brief by the Association of American Medical Colleges, which makes the same claim in almost identical language. It, in turn, refers to a 2020 study whose lead author is a man by the name of Brad Greenwood, 
a professor at the George Mason University School of Business. The study itself makes no such claims. It examines mortality rates in Florida newborns between 1992 and 2015 and shows a 0.13% to two-tenths of a percent improvement in survival rates for black newborns with black pediatricians, though no statistically significant improvement for black obstetricians. So when we're talking about increases of between one and a half tenths of a percent to two tenths of a percent, this is not mathematically significant. It is just the Supreme Court parroting a mathematically absurd claim coming from an interested party's mischaracterization of a flawed study. And that's all we have for today. It's a Friday. Have a great weekend for the Jamie Dury Show podcast. I'm Jamie Dury.